HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio, coming to you today from sunny California, where we're preparing for the Land Access Symposium at UC Berkeley, and working our tissues off in the bright sunshine. I'm joined today from Maine um, by Sam, who is part of the Maine Grain Alliance. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. How's it going up there? Tell us about the... The winter you've been having? Well, the winter's been pretty up and down. It's been uh, very, very frigid early part of the winter, and and then periods of, uh, of defrost, and I'm just hoping my grain that I have in the ground survives the winter. So tell us a little bit about the grain that can grow in Maine, and maybe a little bit about the history of um, grain growing in Maine and, and, and the future that you're seeing ahead? Well, um, I'm pretty new to grain growing, actually, and I've only been doing it for about three or four years. And I learned about it, the, about what was happening here in the state um, back when I was working on <clears throat> several different farms in the, in the state. And um, just through what the universities have done with their research and introducing grain growing back into the Northeast in general. Um, it's historically speaking, uh, the little I do know was that most every state in the Northeast produced grain, and it wasn't until the push west that grain growing really left left the area. And then a couple hundred, you know, a hundred years later, people are are interested in it again. So the basics of grain 
on a small scale in this kind of new phase of, or in the green revival, what are some of mm -hmm. the um, stumbling blocks or what are the components that we have to reinstate in order to make grain growing viable again um, on the scale that makes sense to the landscape? Well, it's, um, I mean, the stumbling block I'm coming up against is sourcing the right scale of equipment to grow grain on what most people would consider a small scale, but for the Northeast it's maybe medium scale. It's from 2 to 30-acre range. And the equipment is not not really readily available, especially in the Northeast. Um, and so the big stumbling block for people who want to get into it is is finding and sourcing the right scale of equipment for for doing that, and that that includes just the planting and preparing of your ground, planting of your grains, and the harvesting, the cleaning and the drying and the storing. There's quite a lot of parts to it, and it's kind of relearning what we need and and um, and sourcing those, or and trying to <clears throat> maybe even talk with other um, small manufacturers, equipment manufacturers, to start. Um, new lines of smaller scale equipment like they have in other parts of the world in Asia and Europe. Um, but well, it's there really, is... It's, yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. You're just talking about other parts of the world. I wanted to briefly yeah. mention when when we did the sailboat project down from Vermont to Maine, from Vermont to Manhattan, um, the seed cleaning, I mean, it's not seed cleaning, it's the rice polishing machine mm -hmm. that Eric has. He got it mm -hmm. from Japan, and it's actually coin-operated. Because, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, um, you know, usually it would be owned by a village, and people would just be paying for how much of the time that they clean their rice. See, that's that's great. I think, you know, it, it's tough, and it, that's a neat model to go off of. It's hard um, in this country. We are so spread out. We have such a big land mass that that um, traveling with, say, seed cleaning equipment is certainly possible. But um, everyone needs to harvest at the same time, so you run into that problem. So, how are you? How are you dealing with this in your world? And what can you tell us about the wild west of? Um, which is what all the guys in my life talk about, is finding equipment, trailering it all over America, knowing yeah. where in Indiana is this, like, secret pot of gold of Alex yeah. Chalmers, geez, dot, dot, yeah. dot. Yeah. Well, you have to enjoy... You have to enjoy scouring the classifieds. Um, and just hunting down what you think may fit your bill. Um, I'm on, you know, Craigslist. Uncle Henry's is a local classified here in Maine. And then Lancaster Farming in Pennsylvania is a broader northeast paper that's got classified. Um, then you have word of mouth, talking to other farmers at conferences, really just getting connections and cold calling people to see if they might have something or know of anyone, get a get a recommendation to check out this auction up in northern Vermont or something like that in the spring. Um, um, and then 
I know a few people here in the north in uh, in Maine who are trying to work with some equipment dealers in Asia to import some of the smaller equipment, like you were you were referencing there in Japan. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, you can't go too far abroad because then it ends up you end up spending more than than you paid for the piece of equipment. So it's kind of a juggling act of well, how much do you want to pay to, to truck the piece of equipment to you? Is it going to be what you need? Is it going to be serviceable and usable? Um, yeah, so it's it's a lot of hunting around. It's quite a lot of work. If you luck out, you find something that your neighbor has that he pulls out of the the barn or the stone or off the stone wall, and you can get it to function. You know, another point is that we um, farm equipment is, is is we're used to paying really dirt cheap for it for used farm equipment, and and yeah. you know farmers will sell stuff for less than it than its scrap value, kind of routinely, because yeah. there's this kind of unwritten rule of intergenerational solidarity that they shouldn't let that piece of machinery go into scrap. Um, but it, it, in fact, getting to the point of having, you know, of manufacturing and fabricating uh-huh. these, um, these equipments, just having the, um, just having the, the shop space and all of the equipment that you need to get it together. Oh, there's a word I'm forgetting for how they lay out the pieces, but. Um, right, I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a fabricator yeah. noob, but I watch yeah. and I listen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, then you um, have um, the whole farm hack movement of people trying to make their own things um, in an online community. I'm I'm sure you know of those guys. Um. Yeah. I I do. I'm actually the secretary of the board of Farm Hack. <laughs> Excellent. Um. The yeah, the farm hack community is a great place to find tools, uh, and where there's a lot of discussion going on about you know tool development, tool modification, and um, we just we just hosted these wonderful guys from France. I talked about them last week, but uh-huh. they're they've mobilized an incredible institutional mojo. They're um, teaching. I think they've taught like 130 classes two farmers on metal fabrication skills. So they even got Great. the French government to pay for the training courses to do the training um, for the farmers. And all the farmers have to pay for is their food and housing and the metal that they use, and they walk mm-hmm. away with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment, which they have built themselves and know how to fix themselves. Um, and it's under the vocational training program Um that farmers pay into, um, you know, it's, it's part of their um, uh-huh. taxes. Okay. Uh, but, you know, when I think about the challenge of rebuilding the infrastructure that it will take to run a resilient, dynamic, diverse, regional food economy, I recognize yeah. that the renaissance of our vision in terms of farming will require a retooling that is going to probably go beyond you know, hacking stuff together um, and may actually turn into there being a pretty vital and vibrant small-scale manufacturing sector again in this country. So Exactly. We I'm really, with, I'm with you. We're, we're a ways off from that, but I think it's definitely going to happen. <laughs> I think it's definitely going to happen. We're, I mean, we're a ways off. But, 
you know, part you know, while part of me is freaked out by all these drones and stuff, um, uh-huh. and the drones, I don't know. I just was biking over to Inkworks in Berkeley to pick up the postcards for this for the New Farmers Almanac, and I, there was okay. this open door, and I walked in and to look at the there. It's called 3D Robotics, and they make drones and stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm freaked out by it, but at the same time, those guys all are, um, you know, they're fabricating things. They're they're engineers. They're in this country. They're learning about manufacturing, and in that sense, they're kind of like a brain base that, you know, could yeah, potentially I would serve love a different to tap god. Into a group like that, and especially have them try to figure out a small scale uh, grain thresher or and or um, dehuller would be excellent. Yeah, tell me, tell me about the challenge of dehulling. Dehulling is a big challenge. Um, there are plenty of grains that you can grow, and they will thresh free of their hulls. But they're also a good deal that that do not, and they keep the tight hull around the, around the grain. And that's that's a problem if you're looking to grind your own grains for flour because those hulls remain in the flour, and they're not very pleasant for baking and, and eating. So you need to remove them um, after you've harvested and cleaned your grain. And as far as I know, there's a couple kinds of dehulling machines. There's an impact dehulling machine, which I think is more for oats, and I think you might be able to use uh, run spelts or something like that. But there's an impact, and then there's more of a, an abrading kind of dehulling. Um, both those both those tools are not on the scale, not on a small scale at all. There's, it's, um, I know of a couple farms that might have access to equipment like that, but it's it's really for the big guys, the big growers, um, who can afford thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And, well, um, you know, it's like anything. Yeah. I guess you have to kind of build up the courage, also, that you can. You know your production skills match the investment that you're making in the equipment that you you know figured out how to grow a clean stand, mm. uh, which it sounds like takes a while. I just from just from talking to people that I know that it's it's similar to vegetables. It takes a while to get it to get it right. Certainly does, and and that kind of that kind of brings me to talking about um, just um, field crops in general and. and growing a good crop, and it's been a challenge for me just starting out, um, not only with the equipment, but just learning about field crops and crop rotations, and yeah, there's lots there's lots to it to have a clean crop and the timing of harvesting, and um, it's, uh, I've, I've learned a great deal, actually, from a new book that just came out. Um, you've probably heard, heard about Jack Laser's new book. Uh, the organic yeah, he's grower. so excited. He's so excited to be a teacher now. He, he just survived yeah. a pretty intense little bout of sickness. So he, he said, "This this next phase of his life is all about teaching." Yeah, it's fantastic. I've really um, I've just been working through his book this winter, and I've learned I've learned quite a lot. And uh, I've talked to him a few times, and he's um, he's going to be a good resource for for anyone trying to get into into grain and bean growing and corn too. So he's been helping you learn um, some better production skills and um, quality assessment, I'm sure. 
uh, what are some of the things you're looking for, um, you know, when you're thinking through your, when you're thinking through your planning and your succession? Uh, what have you learned in the last maybe year that you that you figured out in this past year that you could share that you hadn't figured out the year before? Maybe that's a good place to start. I think um, uh, starting with um, with just field preparation before planting. Um, you know, I, I was just working with very, very basic tools: a uh, two-bottom plow, three-bottom plow, and a disc harrow, and um, a spring-tooth harrow to prepare the ground. And there's lots of other tools out there to create a finer seed bed. And um, so I've learned a, a bit about what I could go out and look for to make um, to make a finer seed bed um, to create better soil to grain seed contact. And then you're planting just um, different types of seed drills. I'm working with something quite old that doesn't have um, packing wheels and, and behind the um, uh, each drill, each shoe. And so the idea um, is when you drill your seed, the wheel packs down behind it, creating that very nice seed to soil contact while you, the space between the six or seven inches, depending on your spacing, is more loose soil. And therefore, you won't have as much seed, um, uh, weed seed germination in the looser soils. And then using, um, using a tine weeder before or after you've planted, uh, maybe even two times. So I've learned a lot of the techniques to planting and cultivating. And in harvesting, um, there's a lot to learn with combine adjusting and just having the access to a combine to get the crop in when it needs to come in, not too late when it's maybe had a rain on it or two when it's starting to lodge or lay down and just getting the crop in as soon as it's to an acceptable moisture level. Um, those are those are huge things I've I've learned recently. Just um, not waiting. Well, let's talk a little bit about moisture level because I think yeah. a lot of people are interested in grains or get interested in grains as you did, mostly because they're sick of buying in grains from Canada yeah. and Iowa for animals. Yeah, for animals. Yeah. Well, well, and it seems like that's kind of a lower stakes game. Yeah, that's. I mean, but I think everyone who's interested in growing grain should have, I mean, if they're going for the, for the human-grade market, that's really going to be tough in the Northeast. But you can certainly do it. But you should have the, a backup plan for what if the crop has, you know, has gotten some rain on it, it's sprouted a little bit, it's affecting the falling number, which um, then you have a couple options. You can, you can go for livestock feed or, well, usually that's, that's your only option, but um, yeah, I mean, have have the backup plan and, and already there. And if you have a flock of chickens, or you're feeding some milk cows, or or you've got pigs, then you could partially formulate your own rations from your homegrown grains. Just like in the old days. Just like in the old days, pick up your Morrison uh, feed guide and and create your own ration. So that's a very important book. You'll see it on everybody's shelf, Morrison's Weed 
and feeding, which describe a lot of the mixtures of different uh, ration constituents, how to use sugar beets and mango beets and turnips and peas and how to evaluate where your protein's coming from. Yeah. Before we, before everyone bought premixed peas, they had to yeah, study I mean, that. Yeah, just ba- balancing your own ration isn't isn't really all that hard, but that book you're you're talking about is is the go-to Bible of of that, and you can find it. I found my copy on eBay. I think. Yeah, they're pretty but, cheap. I think it, you can get it for twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to find. But as far as moisture levels, um, grain, small grains should be stored. You know. 12 to 13 range, so very, very dry. And usually coming out of the field, you're quite a bit higher than that, um, even on a nice dry day. You'd really be lucky if you could harvest it without doing any secondary drying. And that's that's another challenge to it. There's lots of hurdles, but, um, I mean, the first year I harvested some grain, I didn't have any way to dry, So, but I did have some um, a hoop house that was, being stored in my barn that wasn't being set up yet, and I just set the hoops up and put some plastic over it and laid some plastic inside and spread the the ton of rye, I think it was, on the ground and um, did it did it via solar evaporation kind of, and uh, it dried within a couple of days and it was fine. Well, but that was a lot so of hand labor. To totally. Well, and that's like in India, you see everyone has this, like terracotta threshold in their little house, and they spread yeah. the grains out on the pot. On the it's like a, basically like a mud or um, adobe or whatever mm-hmm. clay terrace, mm-hmm. which is perfect. And then, have you seen those things? Those like screw-in air blowers. We should get those. Yeah. On, uh, my yeah. friend hacked one of those. We should get that on Farm Hack. I need to find those guys. I got a couple of those last year, and I used them, and. Um, they can really save you if if you don't want if you if you have you know over a ton of grain that you're trying to dry down this can buy you a bit of time to it could possibly dry down your whole crop just in in the one ton tote bag with those pencil aerators that you're talking about or or get you you know buy you a couple of days while you figure it out when for doing something else but those are yeah, expensive yeah, a little stop gap never really hurt anybody. Um, the the thing that I've been noticing, so we've been making films, um, uh-huh. we've been making films lately, started up editing again, which is awesome, and one of them is about grains, and so have been talking to people in the Willamette Valley from the Willamette green, in, uh, Bean and Grain and uh-huh. folks at Shag Bark and, um, you know, Stephen Jones out in Washington and yeah. the main green folks and Hayden Flour Mills in Arizona and Northeast Grain Growers and it's like there's every region has its own little kind of grain posse. Yeah, um, you're right. <laughs> I wonder um I wonder if you could tell me is there any are there like listservs or um how do people kind of tune into the grain posse near them and start sharing resources effectively and kind of learning how to navigate their way to learning and tools and and expertise? Well, um, I think you can start 
I mean, I, I don't really know the, the exact answer to that, but you can definitely start with your university. Um, it seems like a lot of the areas in the country that are trying to bring back and researching grains have trials they're doing, they have bulletins, they have information that you can tap into, and that's, that's a starting point. Um, and then usually from there you'll discover that there are grain conferences happening at least somewhere near you that you can go to in the winter, and you'll listen to grain farmers that have been at it for all their lives or you know, are 10 or 12 years in, and, and you'll just make connections with them, and you'll figure out that there is a little there is a little world of, of growers out there and um, and you learn from them and you just pick up pieces here and there. I don't know of any national type organization. It's pretty pretty segregated into the into the different geographic locations like you were talking about out in western Washington, uh, WSU Washington yeah, Washington no, I can't remember if it's Western Washington. Anyway, out in the Pacific Northwest, um, here in the Northeast, with the Northern Grain Growers Alliance and the different universities, Cornell, UVM, and University of Maine. But um, there's also activity down in the Carolinas too. There's there's everything. There's there's lots of lots of groups, but one one uh, nationwide listserv or something. I I just don't know. Yeah, it may not exist. I was just kind of wishing to listen in more. But um, the thing that we should focus on in our la- in our last minute or so is yeah. what's coming up this season uh, for the Maine Grain Alliance and other regional gatherings in here in Maine. Uh-huh. I'm coming up to Maine um, to do some some work around Maine sale freight. And grain is obviously one of the top picks for uh, delivering by sale because it doesn't need to be refrigerated. Um, tell us yeah. about the Maine Grain Alliance's conference. It used to be called the Meeting Conference, and now it's not. Now it's not. I thought it, oh. Well, last summer it was still the Needing Conference, and that was the first year I had gone to it. I've always meant to go to it. I've heard great things about it, and last year I was invited to go and talk on a panel. And it's a wonderful, wonderful time. It's it's a couple days long, and it's an intensive two days. And um, the people that are there are really passionate about baking or growing and just using grain and corn. And it's um, you meet a lot of people, you eat a lot of bread and great other great foods. And it's really fantastic. I I would either try to come here to Maine to it or. Or go to the West Coast Needing uh, Conference uh, if you're if you're interested at all, especially the bakers out there. Um, well, and, and I think I think that we'd both agree. I mean, and, and I, the, the counsel I would just give to listeners who are you know thinking about how are they ever going to fit into this world of agricultural renaissance, and maybe they're not really a vegetable person and they're not really an animal person. You know, it may be that you're a grain person. And that you like tinkering with metal pieces and fittings, and you like ripping through the ground with uh, diesel. Um, is that <laughs> or not? You could do with. Or not? You could do with horses I, easily. 
Yeah, totally. You can do it with horses, and not everybody's a machine head. There are some machine heads, though, who are involved in grace, I've noticed. Um, so, so that's one thing to just consider if you're, you know, still trying to figure it out. Think, be, consider grain. We all do like bread, and, and the grains are, you know, among the most commodified parts of our food system and most concentrated in the hands of the fewest number of companies and most vertically integrated, selling them to confined animal operations in the most mm-hmm. consolidated meat production systems in the most confined and inhumane uh, and polluting systems. So really, in terms of the sustainability juggernaut of un- unraveling ourselves from um, the, terminal, the terminal global problem, is grains are going to be a major part of that. So we need, grains we need and some beans. good grains. Let's and, bring them back. We need, sorry, grains and beans. Grains and beans. Let's bring them back. <laughs> well, Sam, I really appreciate your time and hope to see you in Maine sometime. Yeah, give me a holler if you're up my way. And, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It was nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Talk to you next week about more things. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>